slow down, you move too fast. You got to make the morning last. Just kicking down the cobblestones, looking for fun and feeling groovy. So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow. Hmm. What is the news anyway? What matters? What should we pay attention to? What is worth our time? And what is a waste of time? A consideration of what we consider news and what's at stake for our own survival and for society at large, in which we take up the fate of Earth and all life, including spiders, and you'll be glad, you truly will, in poems by William Carlos Williams, coming soon to a neighborhood near you in Patterson, Mary Oliver, James Wright, Theodore Rutke, Wendell Berry, Cynthia Wolock, Elizabeth Bishop, Mark Doty, Robert Burns, Walt Whitman, Stanley Kunitz, Gerard Manley Hopkins, Thomas Lux, Shakespeare Thoreau, of course, Emily Dickinson, and more in such poems, so-called weeds and unloved creatures thrive by our own hand, thrive by our notice, thrive by our attention, thrive by our love. Spiders and whatnot live, and we live. So, what matters? So much. And thus, we sort out the news we need, the news we heed, the news without which men die miserably. Every day, let us go then, welcoming you to the Poetry Slowdown. You know you move too fast. We're produced on the West Coast by Zappa Johns. I'm based here in Eugene, Oregon, track capital of the world for poetic feet podcast at barbaramossberg.com and we're taking time out from the headline news the late breaking news the fast breaking heartbreaking news for the news you need the news we heed the news without which men die miserably every day well what do i mean by this exactly as I invite you to slow down. These words we quote on our show every week are taken from this long poem by William Carlos Williams, who is featured, as I said, in this new feature film, Patterson. It's named for an epic poem he wrote about his hometown. In To Asphodel, that greeny flower, Williams says, My heart rouses, thinking to bring you news that concerns you and concerns many men. And then he says it's difficult to get the news from despised poems, yet men die miserably every day for lack of what is found there. Well, that's an outrageous claim, even for a poet. And we remind ourselves that he should know. Poetry is a matter of life and death. Well, as a poet, of course, he thinks it's important, but he's a physician. Every day he's treating people and he's dealing with life and death. And he goes home at the end of the day. He, um, he makes a house call on himself. And he writes himself a prescription on his prescription pads, and it's poetry. So his poetry is his own way of healing and resilience and his ability to keep going to save his patients. Well, what is in these poems that he thinks can save and change our life? He writes a poem like The Red Wheelbarrow. I don't know if you remember this poem. This is a poem that infuriates people. What kind of poem is this? The only thing really clear about it is the title, The Red 
wheelbarrow. And this is how it goes. So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rain water beside the white chickens. That's the whole poem. I'll read it again. So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rain water beside the white chickens. When I'm reading it to you, hearing it through your ears, it seems to me, first, that the title, The Red Wheelbarrow, is actually different from the way the wheelbarrow is described in the poem as a red wheelbarrow. What depends? So what is the so much that um, depends upon this red wheelbarrow? So somebody is looking at this world so intently it matters so much. And we don't know what it is. I'm thinking of T.S. Eliot's poem, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is stretched out against the sky like a patient, etherized upon a table. Let us follow certain half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats of restless nights and one-night cheap hotels and sawdust, restaurants with oyster shells. Oh, let us go and make our visit. Oh, do not ask, what is it? In the room, the women come and go. Speaking of Michelangelo, our poet laureate of our show, Charles Trippi, pilot, philosopher, poet, grandfather, wise man, asked recently, well, what's the room that the women are in coming and going to and fro and speaking of Michelangelo? And I realized I've never really thought about that. I think I always, you know, conceived it as kind of an art gallery, a museum, right? Talking about Michelangelo, you know, and where is the visit? Maybe it was to the museum. I don't know. I hadn't thought about it. But when we are thinking about the world through the poet's eyes, all of a sudden, in our brains, we are seeing a red wheelbarrow. We're seeing its redness. We're seeing the color. And then the only other words we get here are glazed with rainwater and glaze. That's an artist's word. When you put a glaze on something and you heat it and it brings out the color, the shine, you know, the texture. It's shiny. It's luminous. So the rainwater is glazing this red wheelbarrow and it's beautiful. That's what we're inferring and we're seeing this shiny red next to the white chickens. So now the chickens are really white. Well now that we're looking at the yard this way, what does it mean? That's the question. At last My love has come along My lonely days are over That's William Carlos Williams the Red Wheelbarrow. So we'll hold that question up for a minute. So much depends. What we really know is 
how much it matters to somebody. The emotion with which they're looking at our world and seeing it so clearly. Here is a poem by James Wright, lying in a hammock at William Duffy's farm in Pine Island, Minnesota. So again, we're going to get a very specific view of somebody's backyard. Over my head, I see the bronze butterfly asleep on the black trunk, blowing like a leaf in green shadow. Down the ravine behind the empty house, the cowbells follow one another into the distances of the afternoon. To my right, in a field of sunlight between two pines, the droppings of last year's horses blaze up into golden stones. I lean back as the evening darkens and comes on. A chicken hawk floats over, looking for home. I have wasted my life. James Wright. All right. Did we see that coming? I have wasted my life. Here he is looking at the earth with that same kind of clarity. There's a red wheelbarrow and the rain water has glazed it and it's beside the white chickens. Here we have the butterfly is bronze. That kind of artist term for looking at it. This is an artist detailed gaze. The trunk of the tree is black. The shadow is green. Um, what we know about the geography of this uh, terrain, there are two pines, there's a field of sunlight, and in that, horse manure, literally droppings of last year's horses, blaze up into golden stones. It's this alchemy. They are gold. This is a shining, precious, literally precious environment. And he's wasted his life. Well, what does he mean that he's wasted his life? How is he living it? And we're back to this question. So much depends upon looking and seeing our world with this clarity. And I'm thinking of the statement of Henry David Thoreau in Walden in the 1840s. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach, and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. I did not wish to live what was not life. Living is so dear, nor did I wish to practice resignation unless it was quite necessary. I wanted to live deep and suck out all the marrow of life to live so sturdily and Spartan-like as to put to rout all that was not life, to cut a broad swath and shave close, to drive life into a corner and reduce it to its lowest terms. So he's differentiating here life and not life, and what he can learn from going to the woods, what, which can teach, which made me think of Shakespeare's As You Like It, where the Duke, who's been exiled to the forest, says, sweet are the uses of adversity that see tongues in trees, books in running brooks, sermons in stones, and good in everything. 
that that seems to be the key here that you can go to nature and it speaks to you it sings to you it preaches to you you can read it and you can see the good in everything horse manure becomes gold and it's blazing and a wheelbarrow in the rain is glazed and it's significant and it matters well i'm thinking of what do we get then from poetry what's the news here what is it that is going to keep us from dying miserably what is in these poems well how are we going to live our life here's a poem by mary oliver who made the world who made the swan and the black bear who made the grasshopper this grasshopper i mean the one who has flung herself out of the grass the one who is eating sugar out of my hand who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face now she snaps her wings open and floats away I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything, Doesn't everything die, everything at, last die at last and too soon? And too soon? Tell me, Tell me what, is what is it you plan to do with your, your one wild and precious life? Mary Oliver, yeah. the summer day. And it seems poetry slowed down. She's slowed down. And she's asking these questions, looking around she's in the yard too she says who made this and the kind of detail that we're being uh invited to witness this grasshopper so we are going to get to see a grasshopper up close and personal this one who's flung herself out of the grass She's eating sugar out of her hand, and then we get to see her jaws working, and it's in such detail that we learn that the jaws move back and forth instead of up and down. So now we're, our mind is trying to imagine both kinds of movement, and the forearms of a grasshopper are pale. So that's a detail that we don't usually think of. and. The grasshopper is washing her face. She's snapping her wings open. This has the same effect on the poet narrator that we see with James Wright. Just looking around at the two pine trees and the chicken hawk floating overhead and the butterfly, it just makes him overcome. And he thinks about his life, however we interpret the poem. Has he wasted his life because he's sitting there looking at this detail or because he hasn't been doing it enough until now? And now he's going to be looking forever and seeing how precious and amazing and blazing and um, grazed. And what Mary Oliver says, this this word here it's it's a shining world it isn't just precious 
that's what happens when we're looking at nature and trees have tongues and the brooks are books and stones are sermons and there's good in everything. She's not wasting her time either. So we're seeing these poems where there is incredible attention being paid to what there is. And we're looking at the poem so carefully. And through the poem, we're conceiving, we're calling up in our mind these images of the world, of nature, and its detail, its colors, and its shapes, and its textures. And we're starting to think about who made this, and the artistry of it, the, the majesty, the, the value of it. Literally, it's precious, and it's wild. Well, that's what we can get from a poem. Theodore Retke says, in a dark time, and we all have dark times, in a dark time, the eye begins to see. I meet my shadow in the deepening shade. I hear my echo in the echoing wood, a lord of nature weeping to a tree. I live between the heron and the wren, beasts of the hill and serpents of the den. What's madness but nobility of soul at odds with circumstance? The day's on fire. I know the purity of pure despair, my shadow pinned against a sweating wall. That place among the rocks, is it a cave or winding path? The edge is what I have. A steady storm of correspondences, a night flowing with birds, a ragged moon, and in broad day the midnight come again. A man goes far to find out what he is, death of the self in a long, tearless night, all natural shapes blazing, unnatural light. Dark, dark my light, and darker my desire, my soul, like some heat-maddened summer fly, keeps buzzing at the cell, which I is I. A fallen man, I climb out of my fear. The mind enters itself, and God, the mind, and one is one free in the tearing wind. Theodore Retke. And here we are again, out in nature, and it's blazing, all natural shapes, blazing. Here's Wendell Berry, the peace of wild things. When despair for the world grows in me, so another dark time when the eyes really see. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be. I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free. That's Wendell Berry. He's calling up my
This is Professor Barbara Mossberg at the Poetry Slowdown with producer Zappa Johns, and we are asking, what's the news in poetry that matters so much, that so much depends upon, that makes us feel that we are not wasting our one wild and precious life. And we just heard In a Dark Time by Theodore Rutke and The Peace of Wild Things by Wendell Berry. And in a way, they're very similar that at the end of each poem of going in nature, in when a man goes far to find out what he is, he climbs out of his fear, the mind enters itself, and God the mind, and when is when free in the tearing wind, and Wendell Berry's, I come into the presence of still water, I feel above me the day blind stars waiting with their light for a time, I rest in the grace of the world, and I'm free. So we we have this this happy ending, if you will, in these poems by paying attention, by being supremely conscious of what there is to see, even if we are feeling, especially if we are feeling despair or fear or it's a dark time, our eyes can really see what's there. And in the alchemy of of that process, we, we see that, as Shakespeare said, there's good in everything, and it's beauty, and it's shining, and it's blazing, and it's glistening, and it's glazed, and it's precious. Well, that's what poetry can do. And poetry, we know, um, is considered often something that's not just, as William Carlos Williams says, difficult and despised, although he claims necessary for us to live, but it's considered really not that practical for life. And I was uh, reflecting the other day um, uh, with a group uh, a, a civic group bringing together leaders in our community. I was recalling how years ago, it was my mother's birthday, I was in Maine writing poetry. She was in Los Angeles, 3,000 miles away, and I wondered what I could do for her birthday being so far away, and I sent her poems. And I imagined her receiving these poems in the mail from her daughter, and this poem is called The Audience. My daughter wrote me a poem. I thought, my daughter wrote this, writing poetry when she could be making money working in advertising. I tell her, if you're too good for advertising, there's always TV. You can't think that is below you. I tell her, maybe... If it were stories, I could help. Poetry, I don't know about. But I can't say anything. She's very sensitive. So what is she doing with her wife, this daughter? All this college and no job. I don't think she wants one. Believe me, she could have one. My brother was a dancer. Went on the stage and see where he ended up. What you need is a job. My daughter likes nice things. She'll never be happy without money. Still, it's very nice. My daughter wrote me a poem, calls me a skinny giraffe, says she is my daughter. Why is she always telling me she is my daughter? What is she trying to convince me of? Well, I don't think it will sell. But it is nice to get a letter. My son doesn't write me. Of course, he has a job. Well, I felt very sorry for myself, you know, writing that. And at one point, I actually did read this to my mother. And she said, how did you know? 
Well, we know. And I was thinking how it's hard to imagine how important poetry can be. But we're reading the poem. And the poet's paying attention to our world is, I think, doing what Thoreau was talking about when he said, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately and not discover at the end of my life I have not lived at all. And how is he doing that? He's fronting the essential facts. He's looking at it, at the red wheelbarrow glazed with rain beside the white chickens. He's honoring what there is to see. I'm thinking of Cynthia Wolock's poem, Anniversary. Because once we've looked at the world, once we've gotten down on the ground, up close and personal with a grasshopper like Mary Oliver, you know, how, we're, how we've spent an afternoon being idle and blessed, really looking, seeing, then our life is, is wild and it is precious. And we're spending it in a way that is not wasting at all. And once we've done that, we have that forever. This is anniversary, Cynthia Wollock. Didn't I stand there once, white-knuckled, gripping the just-lit taper, see the light again, swearing I'd never go back, and hadn't you kissed the rain from my mouth? And weren't we gentle and awed and afraid knowing we'd stepped from the room of desire into the further room of love. And wasn't it sacred, the sweetness we licked from each other's hands? And were we not lovely then? Were we not as lovely as thunder and damp grass and flame? So, once you've looked at the world and you've experienced on, on this level, it is so infinitely precious. Stanley Kunitz was reading this poem when he was a hundred. He was the um, poet laureate of the United States when he was 95. The Round. Light again light, the artist looking at our natural world. Light splashed this morning on the shell pink anemones, swaying on their tall stems. Down blue spiked Veronica, light flowed in rivulets over the humps of the honeybees. This morning I saw light kiss the silk of the roses in their second flowering, my late bloomers flushed with their brandy. A curious gladness shook me. So I have shut the doors of my house, so I have trudged downstairs to my cell, so I am sitting in semi-dark, hunched over my desk with nothing for a view to tempt me but a bloated compost heap, steamy old stink pile under my window. And I pick my notebook up and I start to read aloud the still wet words I scribbled on the blotted page, light splashed. I can scarcely wait till tomorrow when a new life begins for me, as it does each day. As it does each day. Stanley Kunitz. Well, all right. He has not died miserably. He is a hundred, and he is excited every single day. And he has now told us the secret, the secret of looking at the world. He looks at his flowers, and 
he sees light on them and in his mind light is behaving like water it is like a river it has a current it splashes and it flows in rivulets and it's a lover it kisses oh and he's glad gladness shakes him he's not wasting his life he is having the most tremendous time looking at his flowers and writing about it and writing about it is a way I think that's the secret of the poet that as you're trying to recreate your feeling here he's talking about gladness and each of these poems that we've been reading it's about this this tremendous feeling of of the significance of being alive and having your senses and seeing what's here and trying to to call that to consciousness is what in a way makes us know what is precious and it makes it immoral we're making something beautiful in the process of writing the poem. Thomas Lux will take this idea, poetry slow down, to a very real level because we're he talking here about Stanley Kunitz and he's talking about you know flowers and Mary Oliver's talking about a grasshopper okay you can see a grasshopper is beautiful but Thomas Lux is now going to try to find preciousness and value and beauty and glazing and grazing and glistening on a tarantula okay this is called tarantulas on the life Boy. For some semi-tropical reason, when the rains fall, relentlessly they fall into swimming pools, these otherwise bright and scary arachnids. They can swim a little, but not for long, and they can't climb the ladder out. They usually drown. But if you want their favor, if you believe there is justice, a reward for not loving the death of ugly and even dangerous, the eel, hog, snake, rats, creatures, if you believe these things, then you would leave a life boy or two in your swimming pool at night. And in the morning, you would haul ashore the huddled, hairy survivors and escort them back to the bush. And know, be assured that at least these saved as individuals would not turn up again someday in your hat drawer or the tangled underworld of your socks. And that even when your belief in justice merges with your belief in dreams, they may tell the others in a sign language four times as subtle and complicated as man's that you are good, that you love them, that you would save them again. So that's Thomas Lux giving us a way to imagine seeing the precious value of life of a tarantula and that in a profound way that can save our own life. Many people 
have actually written about things like spiders. Walt Whitman, a noiseless, patient spider here, giving a spider a virtue. A noiseless, patient spider. I marked where, on a little promontory, it stood isolated, marked how to explore the vacant, vast surrounding. It launched forth filament, filament, filament out of itself, ever unreeling them, ever tirelessly speeding them. And you, O oh my soul, where you stand, surrounded, detached, in measureless oceans of space, ceaselessly musing, venturing, throwing, seeking the spheres to connect them, till the bridge you will need be formed, till the ductile anchor hold, till the gossamer thread you fling catch somewhere, O oh my soul. So once again, valuing the spider, seeing the spider in this tremendous detail saves, literally for Walt Whitman, doesn't just save our life, it saves our soul. This is some of what William Carlos Williams may be talking about, how poetry is its own news, why it's the news we need, the news we should heed, because it gives us a way to think about seeing our world in a different kind of detail, and with that detail, seeing that it is a creation, seeing it as beautiful and precious and life-giving and life-saving. This is Mary Oliver. We've seen what she does with the grasshopper. Here's what she does with peonies. This morning, the green fists of the peonies are getting ready to break my heart as the sun rises, as the sun strokes them with his old buttery fingers and they open pools of lace, white and pink. And all day, the black ants climb over them, boring their deep and mysterious holes into the curls, craving the sweet sap taking it away to their dark underground cities. And all day, under the shifty wind, as in a dance to the great wedding, the flowers bend their bright bodies and tip their fragrance to the air and rise, their red stems holding all that dampness and recklessness gladly and lightly. And there it is again, beauty, the brave, the exemplary, blazing, open. Do you love this world? Do you cherish your humble and silky life? Do you adore the green grass with its terror beneath? Do you also hurry, half-dressed and barefoot, into the garden and softly, and exclaiming of their dearness, fill your arms with the white and pink flowers, with their honeyed heaviness, their lush trembling, their eagerness to be wild and perfect for a moment before they are nothing forever. Mary Oliver, Peonies. And there's that word, again glazed blazing open loving the world cherishing it finding it is precious on this level of detail and Stanley Kunitz once more 
we're talking again about the heart and what breaks our heart, what makes our heart, what makes us live happily. Summer is late, my heart. Words plucked out of the air some 40 years ago when I was wild with love and torn almost in two, scatter like leaves this night of whistling wind and rain. It is my heart that's late. It is my song that's flown. Outdoors all afternoon under a gunmetal sky, staking my garden down. I kneeled to the crickets trilling underfoot as if about to burst from their crusty shells. And like a child again, marveled to hear so clear and brave a music pour from such a small machine. What makes the engine go? Desire, desire, desire. The longing for the dance stirs in the buried life. One season only and it's done. So let battered old willow thrash against the window panes and the house timbers creak. Darling, do you remember the man you married? Touch me. Remind me who I am. Stanley Kunitz. And how can we love this life that will end, at least in this form? Gerard Manley Hopkins asks a question. What would the world be once bereft of wet and of wildness? And we've heard the word wild in all of these poems, men and women, young and old. Let them be left, oh, let them be left, wildness and wet, long live the weeds and the wilderness yet. So tarantulas and spiders and grasshoppers, weeds, all of these things are precious if we're looking at them. And Theodore Retke takes this theme up again and he says in answer to Gerard Manley Hopkins, Long Live the Weeds, Long live the weeds that overwhelm my narrow vegetable realm. The bitter rock, the barren soil, that forced the son of man to toil. All things unholy, marred by curse, the ugly of the universe. The rough, the wicked, and the wild that keep the spirit undefiled. With these I match my little wit and earn the right to stand or sit, hope, love, create, or drink and die. These shape the creature that is I. And he had asked, you know, what's the I of I? You know, who am I? And it's the poet confronting the weeds in the rocky soil, that bitter rock, the barren soil. You know, it's hard work. And it's really valued work because it's it's getting words to come out of this wild experience and they're beautiful. And I think then about what Shakespeare was saying, that kind of transformation when we see sermons and stones and good in everything. And he has said in that famous passage that the things that we think are so ugly and horrible that, that we can just turn it around. We can see that, that we're wrong about that. They're beautiful. So here is the, here is the whole speech um, from the Duke. Are not these woods more free from peril than the envious court? Because they've been exiled by the court. Isn't this much better? 
Here feel we not the penalty of Adam, the season's difference, as the icy fang and churlish chiding of the winter's wind, which when it bites and blows upon my body, even till I shrink with cold, I smile and say, this is no flattery. These are counselors that feelingly persuade me what I am. So again, this is what Thoreau was talking about. This is Retke. Everybody's echoing Shakespeare. This is how we know ourselves, our conscious selves at all of our senses. And then Shakespeare says, Sweet are the uses of adversity, which like the toad, ugly and venomous, wears yet a precious jewel in his head. And this our life, exempt from public haunt, finds tongues in trees, books in the running brooks, sermons in stones, and good in everything. I would not change it. So that's Shakespeare. Seeing the beauty, his character feels instructed, feels transformed, is living, and it's absolutely precious. So poetry, slow down, as we are winding down our show today, I want to rouse us with a way to think about what is the news, what matters. So much depends on this. It's Walt Whitman. And he's exulting in being a poet who's trying to do justice to this gift of consciousness living on this earth. Oh, to make the most jubilant poem, even to set off these and merge with these carols of death, oh, full of music, full of manhood, womanhood, infancy, full of common employment, full of grain and trees over the voices of animals, over the swiftness and balance of fishes, over the dropping of raindrops in a poem, oh, for the sunshine and motion of waves in a poem. Oh, the joy of my spirit, it is uncaged, it darts like lightning. It is not enough to have this globe or a certain time. I will have thousand globes in all time. Oh, the gleesome saunter over fields and hillsides, the leaves and flowers of the commonest weeds, the moist, fresh stillness of the woods, the exquisite smell of the earth at daybreak. Oh, the joy of that vast elemental sympathy, which only the human soul is capable of generating and emitting in steady and limitless floods. Oh, to ramble about the house and the barn and over the fields once more and through the orchard and along the old lanes once more, to hear the birds sing once more over oh, the happiness with my mate. Oh, perfect happiness at last. I am more than 80 years of age. My hair, too, is pure white. I am the venerable mother. How clear is my mind. What beauty is this that descends upon me and rises out of me to rise at peep of day and pass forth nimbly to work, to plow land in the fall, to plow land in the spring, to train orchards, to graft the trees, to gather apples in the fall. Oh, the pleasures with trees, the orchard, the forest, the oak, cedar, pine, pecan tree, the honey locust, black walnut, cottonwood, and magnolia. Oh, to realize space, the plenteousness of all, that there are no bounds to merge and be of the sky, of the sun and moon and the flying clouds when with them. That is Walt Whip. I believe forever drop the rain falls of flower grove. I believe that somewhere darkest night a candle glow 
our last poem for today that expresses what we can get out of our life through the lens of a poem, how it can be the woods by which we live deliberately. A man's walking along the beach and he looks down and he sees a shell. It's just a broken crab shell. But this is what he makes of it. It's called A Green Crab Shell by Mark Doty. And with his first word, we see that he is looking so intently and he's looking at it the same way that William Carlos Williams is looking at the red wheelbarrow um, glazed with rain beside the white chickens or Mary Oliver is looking at the grasshopper. He's trying to immediately characterize what this looks like and to him it's a creation. He's looking at it as an artist. What color did that artist choose so that his first word shows that he's weighing and measuring and and scrolling and trying to find the right word and he begins with not not exactly green so that's the level of detail that he's immediately getting us to see this shell closer to bronze just as james wright described the butterfly wing not exactly green closer to bronze preserved in kind brine something retrieved from a Greco-Roman wreck, patinated and oddly muscular. We cannot know what his fantastic legs were like, though evidence suggests eight complexly folded, scuttling works of armament crowned by the foreclaws gesture of menace and power. A gulls gobbled the center, leaving this chamber size of a demitas, open to reveal a shocking Giotto blue. Though it smells of seaweed and ruin, this little traveling case comes with such lavish lining. Imagine breathing surrounded by the brilliant rents of summer's firmament. What color is the underside of skin? Not so bad to die if we could be opened into this, if the smallest chambers of ourselves similarly revealed some sky. Mark Doty Today, we've been slowing down with poetry. We've been considering what's the news? What's the news in poetry? What should we be paying attention to? What matters and what's at stake? Our lives. Not wasting our lives, seeing our world as precious, the alchemy of seeing even horse manure as gold, being excited, feeling redeemed, feeling joyous. With producer Zappa Johns, I'm Professor Barbara Mossberg, your grateful, lucky host the poetry slowdown thank you for joining us I got no deeds to do no promise to keep I'm dappled and drowsy and ready to sleep let the morning time drop all its petals on me life I love you all this groovy Bye. Uh -huh.